A reading from Mark 13. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Children's Church with Kelly. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Advent is, um, well, if this is your first Advent with us, with us, in some sense, I'm sorry, um, but also you're welcome. Um, and I say that because uh, Advent in the church's season is this time in which we're first and primarily drawn in sort of this darkness of awaiting what God is going to do. The world has rushed before us. Um, joy to the world, Christmas hymns. This is the latest Advent um, can start. Um, and so this is like we're way behind this year. Um, just as a note, uh, Christmas Eve, as for me, I learned it meant evening, um, uh, somewhat obviously. But that means Advent 4 is Christmas Eve day. So our fourth Sunday of Advent is the same day we come back again and celebrate the light and the gift of the Incarnation. So again, this is the shortest this can get. But it is in the church's wisdom, I think, to draw us into this season in this way, to draw us into this time of hearing things that we don't hear often. From the psalm, to be revived again. Living things aren't revived. 
dead things are. From Isaiah, this idea in which who, how then can we be saved? Even our most righteous works are but rags. And from Mark, um, this notion of the world um, being shaken. Um, If you read backwards in that passage, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. And yet the church is supposed to be called, uh, uh, people called to be awaiting that day awaiting that fullness. It's on the first Sunday of Advent, I'm often reminded of, if you're into um, pop, piano-driven rock bands, it's like five of us, um, there was a story of Chris Martin, the lead singer from Coldplay, meeting the lead singer from The National. Um, And The National, they're they're similar-ish, although somebody would be greatly offended that I've compared the two of them. But what Chris Martin allegedly said to the guy who leads The National was, would it kill you to write a happy song? Um, This Sunday, David has reminded me many times, is like, I'm getting into Advent, but would it kill us to sing a happy song? Um, Would it kill us to bring some happiness to this day? Um, And there is happiness within the text. There is this joy in which they are pleading to an absence of God that is there. They are expecting God to act again. They aren't left with no hope, but they are left in the reality of the situation they're in, the book of Isaiah, the psalmist. And it's interesting, too, that that the lectionary, I didn't choose the readings, um, uh, decides to give us a full, grown-up Jesus giving the words for this Sunday. So the church, in its um, Advent season, uh, I believe it should be up here, um, first, the, the cl- collect we played for today, these will come from the Book of Common Prayer. They'll be on the back of the bulletin every Sunday, um, uh, but you might want to take them and, and pin them up someplace in your house and be able to pray them during the week. Because um, I think as we feel this pull between the world that we know that is frustrated, that is not yet fulfilled, that is still waiting the act of God to bring all things to consummation, and You better celebrate, be happy, buy some more things, placate yourself with food and drink, and just don't acknowledge that there's anything bad going on. Perhaps seeing these prayers might bring um, to mind some of what we're trying to practice at church. But above that, there's the quote from from Karl Barth. What other time or season or will, can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? This is the church's season. This is the season that we live in perpetually. This idea in which God has acted in Jesus Christ in first step. And what we do this day is we await that fulfillment. This is why we hear from from full-grown Jesus from Mark 13 saying, keep watch. That is a perpetual word for the church as it exists in the world waiting that day. To keep watch. It's during Advent we, we sort of center on that. It brings us to mind that we face um, what I've tried to say as we sit, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rest and rescue captive Israel here. We try to position ourselves as we tell the story with Israel in the first instance. This is the one that I think culture somewhat gets right in the sense that we're awaiting this first birth of Jesus. They don't maybe get all the negative things on why we're awaiting it, but they are aware of the joy that is coming. And so for us, Advent first is this place where we try to position ourselves narratively with Israel in the hopes of the coming Messiah. Um, And 
I think if, if we're doing it well in the ways in which we, like them, might have missed the signs. I mean, if the church reads these readings triumphantly, look, we figured it out, we're probably missing the point. Um, but to read these readings and to say, where will this hope come from? To find that hope fulfilled in what God does in Jesus Christ in his incarnation. The second way in which we sort of live into Advent is by looking forward. This is that Mark reading in particular, that we keep watch. We are a people awaiting the fulfillment of all time. We're awaiting that return of Christ. So Advent, um, properly for the Christian, which means arrival, is, is this time of, of sort of awaiting that second arrival too. Um, oftentimes people will say to me as you're, Different people will say, you know, is your church a rapture-believing, Holy Spirit-filled communion of people who are weighted, filled with tongues and all that? And I say, yes, but based on the way you're asking, no. Um, uh, There's something about trying to be a respectable Christian that keeps you from thinking about the second coming all that much. Um, Which is a shame. Um, But I do think it's Advent that draws us into that, to thinking about that. I meant to have it um, printed out, but I'll try to tell the story from memory. Um, it is probably printed out sitting in my office. But the, um, there's this story that um, Joseph Ratzinger that comes from Kierkegaard uh, that he opens his introduction to Christianity, and he tells this story, this, story, this parable, about a, a circus that's getting set up near a, a town in Denmark. And as they're setting up the circus, the tent catches on fire. Now the clown is already dressed for the act, And the the manager of the circus says, while we try to put the fire out, go to town and tell everyone that the tent is on fire. And Kierkegaard, um, he has this weird way of thinking. The clown goes to town and he tries to get everybody to realize that there's a fire and yet the people can't hear him. They think it's a performance. They think he's gesturing the way he should. He thinks, uh, and this time the clown or somebody would go to town also trying to, to make you say, come. Come and pay to see this, and they would invent some sort of tale about it. Um, the clown is trying to sort of, in some sense, uh, drive up business in, in, in normal times. What the cloud is saying today is that there is a fire, and we need your help, and we need to react. And yet the town weeps, or laughs um, to weeping, uh, is what Kierkegaard said, and, and the clown weeps, just weeps, because he can't get the help, and the circus tent burns down. Um, It's the position, I think, the pastor who has these texts finds themselves in. Look, God is about to do something amazing in Jesus Christ. Harvey Cox, um, who's a guy who wrote the book called The Secular City, took this parable from Kierkegaard, and he says, this is the role that the theologian and the pastor and all themselves find them in, because people know the role you're supposed to play. Hey, we're supposed to be getting ready for this next thing that is coming. Yeah, we know. You tell us every year. Um, You fit that position. But I think it's harder, is I think it's the place that that we, you, find yourselves in too. In places of work, in marketplaces, in visiting with others. If you have this sense that God is about to do something grand, and it's hard to break through in the world. People go, of course you'd say that. It's nice that you have that hope. Um, Yeah, we get it. Um, Or if you're 
willing to slow down and perhaps try and focus on one of the songs that you'll hear in pop culture and say, let's talk about the meaning of joy to the world. Does it mean? Um, what do these things bring forth? People go, you know, we just do these things because we've always done them. Um, and so the Christian, like everybody else, finds themselves in the hard position of saying, what does it mean to take this seriously? What does it mean to hear the call again? And uh, as I've said, I think every year, is that at Defiance Church, I purposely try not to advertise new things during this time or try to bring up new things or to make you busier, but to have the sanctuary be a sanctuary from the noise of Christmas, the noise to go buy, the noise to go consume, the noise to, I don't know how many emails you got on Giving Tuesday, but um, I set fire to my inbox. Um, this, this desire to give, and there are good things to give to. But I try to say, what does it mean to have this place for these four weeks to sort of sit in a different spot? It's the church's challenge to inhabit a different time perpetually, but certainly in this season, we really notice how much of a different time we're inhabiting. Let us slow down. Let us pray. Let us... Um, be drawn into these mysteries that existed long before us. Let us look towards the renewal of all things. And so in this way, Advent is, is a potential, penitential season. It's a repentant season as well. Um, in Luke's gospel, Kim and I were talking about it um, before the service. There's two things in Luke's gospel is the sense of barrenness, which... Um, People are waiting and waiting and waiting to have kids, to, to be a part of this. And it's uh, Simeon and uh, Anna at the temple too. All this waiting, he starts. We love waiting, <laughs> don't we? Um, Luke calls attention to that. For this to be truly appreciated, he tells the story of the people waiting for that. Waiting in that time. And so in this time of waiting, we have this chance to, I think, come to our senses in some ways. In a time in which I think the world is trying to um, drag us away from our senses in denial of what's going on, the conflict in Israel, conflict in Ukraine, um, uh, you know, all the things that sort of bombard us in the news, but even the, the conflicts of our own lives, um, the health things, I think that they're is in some sense at, in our shallower times that we want um, all the sick people to go away during this season so it can be properly joyful. Um, uh, and that is a sad thing. Um, you know, I've, I've been, luckily I don't think it's been my family, I can't remember correctly, but as a pastor you're invited into weird places and occasionally you'll meet with people around the Christmas season of like, do we invite Uncle Bob because Uncle Bob's a depressed alcoholic and he ruins the whole party when he comes. And there's a good question there on what you do, but there's this idea in which he drags us into a different sense of time, um, that the world is not just happy and sunshine and rainbows all the time. Um, we try to push those things off the stage. And so what does it mean for us to take this time to, to come to our senses, to look at the world truthfully? And then if we look at the world truthfully and honestly, then we can look at what is being repaired and healing, healed by the incarnation. What is being restored through what God does in Jesus Christ. 
It's the deep challenge of this time, and it's not something that I think comes natural to us. There's one other thing I want to say before we walk through the three texts sort of briefly. Um, Pascal has this saying that every religion that does not affirm that God's hidden is not true. Every religion that does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. Pascal is a Christian writing this. He's actually writing an apologetic work, which is an interesting way to start. I proclaim to you that God is hidden, and that's one of the ways you might know my religion is true. If you think about that for a second, though, I mean, there's lots of ways to think about it. One is, come and see my God. Almost everybody would go, yeah, I'm not getting on that bus. Um, uh, it would take a, a certain interesting person to be like, yeah, you know, I think your God is down the road. Let us all go together and meet the Wendy's um, or wherever this God might be gathered. Um, this, this idea that God's presence is, is in some sense concentrated enough that you can bring people to it sort of falsifies it at the same time, and we kind of know that. Each one of these texts, by the way, today talked sort of about the hiddenness of this mark, the hiddenness of the kingdom, Israel about the hiddenness of you brought us out, we were your vine, and this vine is withering. And Isaiah, um, uh, oh, that you would rip the heavens and come near to us again. Absence. And yet for the church, if we're thinking properly, it's an absence um, that screams for a presence. Um, one of the ways that, that you can think about this is as negative space in, in sort of, you know, advertising is that there's something there, right? Like, like uh, the FedEx logo, I think I blew my children's mind when I was like, see the arrow in it? They were like, no way. Um, uh, and now whenever we see a FedEx truck, they remind me that there's an arrow in it, which you got to think about what you teach your children sometimes. Um, uh, it's not the worst of them by far. Uh, anyways, um, but this... Or like you set a place at the table for somebody you're expecting to be there. In some sense, their absence, that they're not in that spot, proclaims their presence in some ways. For the church to be where in the season, there's an absence as Christ is not in the world. We come and meet with him at the Eucharist. We come in these ways, but not in the ways in which the fullness of time represents is some sense to proclaim a presence at the same time. One of the more um, interesting lines from one of the postmodern novelists is this idea is, uh, God is dead, but I miss him. Um, uh, you can only imagine Nietzsche writing something that dark as well as this idea is that like, there's, a, there's a sense of meaning which is gone, but wouldn't it be nice if we had it? For the church, it's the people who believe that that is still there, despite our inability to see it. Um, this is a, we'll get to the text. There's a story from Eugene Peterson that I just remembered right now where his um, son, the grandson, is playing on the floor with a ball and he's knocking it back and forth and the ball rolls, rolls under the couch and the kid um, gets up and does something else and he's like, what's wrong with him? Is he missing some gene? He was so into the ball, why wouldn't he just go get the ball? And he brings it up to his uh, daughter-in-law who's reading her magazine. He said, what's wrong? He was so loving the ball and it rolled under the table. Uh, and now he's just given up on it. And she says, well, he's young. He's not yet acquired object permanence. 
which is this idea if something isn't there, if we're in the developed mind, the undeveloped mind in this way, if it's not there, it doesn't exist. And once the ball disappears, it doesn't exist to him, and so it's not there. To which Eugene Peterson replies, oh, I have a whole congregation of people like that. Um, I'm not as mean as he is. Um, uh, but what he says there is sort of this idea in which um, we, connecting the Pascal quote, the other stories, and this, that, and the other, it's like we need the presence, and yet we know the presence falsifies at the same time, and yet we're people called to believe and lean into that coming kingdom. Um, it's not easy, um, but I do think in that way, Advent can enlarge our souls and enlarge our vision to see in different ways. The psalm for this morning proclaimed for us, Revive us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Proclaims that several times throughout Psalm 80. Um, How long, O Lord, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. Ends, restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us, and we shall be saved. Psalm 80 draws us, the church, into the season in which, um, with Israel, but also as the church, we ask, how long will this go on? To truly look at the world and its dysfunction may make us feel as if we are feeding on tears. We have the bread of tears that continually comes to us. And as I said, it's, it's not live things. Uh, the Hebrew for restore has this notion of, of sort of um, uh, revive us. Things that are living don't ask to be revived. Robert Fair Capen has this wonderful phrase that he said, the only thing required to, be, uh, to accept the gospel, um, to live in the gospel, is not to be beautiful, smart, able, or this, but to be dead. Um, because it's in that death we are brought back to life by God. Revive us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. It's not lost, hopefully, on us. That Israel's prayer, and our prayer in a different sense, is answered for us in the one who bears the face of God amongst us. The Christ who comes and takes up residency in the world. That is that face that shines upon us, that brings about our saving help. Um, Isaiah, uh, that was also read this morning. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Oh, that you would come down, if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, which was in the psalm too, but there's this idea in which God comes upon that mountain and makes this people his people. And what they're saying in this time of exile and lostness is, oh God, would you do that again? For the church called to keep watch. It's an easy prayer for us. Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down and restore all this. Since ancient times, no one has heard, um, no eye has perceived, ear has perceived, no eye has seen any gods besides you who acts behalf on those who wait for him. 
who acts on behalf of those who wait. This is that absence and presence thing sort of happening there, is you act for the people who know that you are not here yet. You act for the people who can see that that's not the way it is. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All us righteous acts are like filthy rags. For the church, um, how then can we be saved? All of us is unclean. Um, and then to say that filthy rags comment, I just think um, if you've been in church long enough, you've heard people go on about the, how this filthy rag is worse than that, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's this idea in which if we were to try to clean it up, the things at which we have to clean it up only make it messier. To look at the world, look at the, the church, I think, in some ways, to look at the household. I mean, there, there are times in which you can feel this in many ways, is that, that the, the method that I would go about cleaning this up will only make it worse. The instruments of cleanliness are dirty themselves. Yet as this psalm, um, for you have hidden your face from us and you would give us over to our sins that resolves with, yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. It's a dynamic relationship there. What is a potter without clay? There's a dependency that runs between those two things. For God to be potter, there needs to be clay. For clay to, in some sense, have the potential to become something else, there needs to be a potter, too. Calls out, yet you, Lord, are Father. You are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people to honestly look in this hard time. Um, look on us, we pray. For because of what you have done, we are your people. This brings us to the book of Mark, um, which has a, a fun little parable within it too, this idea of which um, you don't know what time... Uh, you don't know what time this is going to happen. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each assigned to their task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. It comes suddenly. Do not let him find you sleeping. What do I say? What do what I say to you? I say to everyone, watch. For the church to be risen to watchfulness during this time, to be the one who waits at the door. I like this passage as I was thinking about it this week because it's so interesting is that the word he gives to his disciples is to keep watch. And then he says that's the job of the one at the door. Everything else has its tasks to do, but there is one who is to keep watch. The church in the midst of this world is almost being called to be a watchman. Watchman for that king, that man who sets up the household, the owner of the household, when he comes. You can think of the household as the world here if you want. The church is the one that is keeping watch for that. It keeps vigil for that. Um, and so how do we 
during this Advent season, rouse ourselves to keep watch on behalf of what the hymns say in another place, a weary world. Um, to be attentive to where Christ might come and show up, to have watchfulness be about us. Um, the gospel is clearly in this passage in the sense in which we are expecting a return. Um, the master of the household is going to return. We set up the household as such. And so we keep watch, but we keep watch not in vain. We await this presence faithfully, knowing that it will be fulfilled. Um, to close, I just want to close with this short saying from Simone Weil. Um, there are people who try to raise their souls like the man continually taking standing jumps in hopes that if he jumps higher every day, a time will come when he no longer falls back, but he will go right up to the sky. The busyness, the wariness, the ways in which we aim to repair everything. Let us jump and jump and jump. Thus occupied, he cannot look away from the sky. We cannot take a single step upward toward heaven. It's not in our power to travel in a vertical dimension. If, however, we look heavenward for a long time, God comes and takes us up. He raises us up easily. For us to hear that we are awaiting something that we can't jump to. As the church sits as a watchman, is awaiting that which repairs and brings about the new world. Brings about that day of rest, of that fullness. He raises us up easily, despite all our efforts and trials. And so, what I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. Let us pray. God, we sit here with prayerfully three different minds. One, enjoining in ancient Israel, awaiting that time in which your son is going to come amongst us and reveal the fullness of who you are and the people you gather up and the way in which you heal and most clearly in the way in which you conquer death and raise to new life. We sit, too, awaiting your return. It's not hard to see a world in dysfunction, a world in busyness, a world in which many of us might feel tired trying to leap up as well. But to turn our gaze towards watchfulness, to you who is to come near to us, who has promised to return, and in the third way, we sit um, knowing that you have called us to be a foretaste of your kingdom, a witness to it in the world, and to meet at this table where bread is broken and wine is shared in remembrance of your death until you come again. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.